So I, I get lost when I drive. Uh, some of you know I've told you that before. Uh, I, it's not because I don't know where I'm at, and it's not because I don't know where I'm going. I get lost because I'm easily distracted. And so I can be driving down the road, listening to music, listening to a song, and forget where I was supposed to go. I can I do it when I'm listening to music. I do it when I listen to podcasting. I do it most often when someone else is in the car with me because I'll be engaged in a conversation, and next thing you know, I don't know where I'm going. It happens with my wife, Kelly, all the time. When she's in the car with me, she will say, and she knows now, and she'll say, where are you going? And I'll I forget, and then she'll tell me, and then I realize I'm going in the opposite direction. So it happens to me all the time. So what I do is I tend to use my phone on GPS when I'm driving alone so I don't end up someplace I don't, I'm not supposed to be. I will put in home. I know where I'm supposed to go, but it, I may get distracted and then be on the wrong street. So, But what I've discovered in that is that there's a lot of different ways to get the places, not necessarily the way that you intended, but you still get there. But there's often one way that is the best way. And uh, I tell you that because we begin this new series called The Way. And uh, this series is today is going to be an introduction to this series. And this series is going to be a series of series, if that makes sense. All right. So over the next, so this is something we're going to be a part of for the next several weeks and months. All right. Uh, today we're going to begin though, I want to give you kind of a roadmap of where we're headed. Today we're going to begin with a, with a statement from Jesus, then a description about the early first century church. Then uh, that our journey will continue as we look at uh, a challenge that Jesus gave to one of his disciples. And then finally, a challenge from the Apostle Paul kind of to put it all together. So we're going to be kind of all over the place, kind of like what happens when I drive. But we'll be good and we'll get there and then we'll be uh, terrific at the end, all right? So so that's kind of where we're headed. Uh, and so before we read the scripture, I want to call an audible and just ask that we pray real quick together. So let's pray. And so Jesus, I pray that during these moments that we have together, these final moments together, uh, God, that you would... Um, Allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart, God, be acceptable to you. And God, we pray that uh, the, the things that are thought and the things that are discussed would be inspiring and encouraging and challenging. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So up on the screen, you'll see in John chapter 14, uh, verse 7, Jesus is speaking to one of his disciples and he says... I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. This is the first reference to this idea of a way. Jesus says that he's the way. And now when he's using that idea, there's some imagery that can be found in the Hebrew Bible. It's often stood for a, 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 a keeping of commandments or of teachings of God. It was kind of a, a metaphor of this active participation in a set of beliefs and teachings and practices. It was kind of like a manner of thinking and feeling and deciding. So Jesus is telling his disciples that he is the path to God, that Jesus is the 
way forward, that Jesus then says he's the embodiment of truth, that as the truth, he is the reality of all that God promises, and that as the source of true truth, he's also the source of abundant life, and that this life, he joins his divine life to our life, and both now and eternal. So Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and he talks about this idea of the way. Now let's fast forward a few decades. Paul, excuse me, uh, in Acts chapter 9, a few decades uh, later, there's these early followers of Jesus, and the Apostle Paul is not yet the Apostle Paul. He's Paul, who's the persecutor of the church, and he's out looking for Christians. He's uh, uh, wanting to stop this sect of believers that are involved in, uh, in changing things in Jerusalem, in a sense. And so in Acts chapter 9, Luke, the writer, says this. He says, he, and he's talking about Paul there, Paul requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any, and then it says this, followers of the way that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Now, throughout the book of Acts, the early followers of Jesus are called the way. As a matter of fact, it's about five times in the book of Acts they're called the way. They're called the way in the book of Acts more than they're called Christians. So this idea of this naming of this group of people was significant during this first century time. This group of believers were a group that were moving forward. They were living in truth and they were discovering abundant life. They were living a different way. They were living a certain way. And it was noticed that, that as they were living this different way, so different that they became associated with a movement and a way to live, and they were called the way. His disciples, in a closed meeting in a sense, turns into a description for a larger group of people who are following in the same way as Jesus. And it hints to the idea that there is a way to live. That there is a way to be identified with Jesus. Now, our context, 2,000 years later, is different. Our world is different. But just like those early followers in the first century, those early followers of Jesus, we are desperate to be on a right path. See, because we're bombarded every day with a thousand different competing voices. We hear fear and anxiety and anger. At the same time, we're bombarded with equally loud inner struggles. All of these things are screaming for our attention, each promising a different path. But then Jesus offers us this different way. A different way. And so we can discover this way of Jesus that has meaning for us here and now. And so that's the season that we're going to be in over the next weeks and months. We're going to be discovering and developing this way to live in this chaotic world. That Jesus is the way to a whole movement called the way. So in every journey, there's always a first step that has to be taken. And so we're going to now move to this next scripture and this kind of this first step, I guess. It's, it, it's, the, it's the beginning of the journey. So it's in Matthew chapter 9, 
It's a great story. It's early in Jesus' ministry. He's gathering his disciples. And as he was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Now Matthew is, this is before he's a disciple, Matthew has an occupation, Matthew is a tax collector. Now tax collectors in the first century, if you're unaware of, uh, of this idea, tax collecting in the first century was a, uh, people saw it as a horrific career if you weren't a tax collector. If you were a tax collector, it was basically a lucrative career. It was unlike taxes in today's, today's 21st century world. The way it would work is that someone who wanted to be a tax collector, they would put a bid out for a section of a city or in a small town, and they would tell the government, I can collect this amount of money from this town. And if they, whatever, whatever bid was the highest bidder, that tax collector would then be responsible for collecting that amount of money and giving it to the government. So you would say, I'll oh, an example, I can, I can collect $10,000 from this group of people. So I would put in a bid that I'm going to collect $10,000, and if the government then gives the bid to me, I'm responsible now to get $10,000 from this group of people. Any amount that I get above that is my take. So you can imagine how this could become a lucrative career and also extortion in a sense. That you would tell people, this is what you owe. And you would seek and find that money. And, you, and so tax collectors were this hated group of people. Also, if you were Jewish, which Matthew was, and a tax collector, he's now chosen a side. He has decided that he is not going to be, he's going to take money from his own people to give it to the Roman government. He's chosen a side. Tax collectors were so awful that they have their own category. That often they talk about tax collectors and sinners. They were worse than sinners in a sense, all right? They were tax collectors and sinners. They couldn't even be lumped in with the other evil people in the world. So Jesus was walking along and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Matthew's in the, he's actually at the office working. He's at his booth working. And Jesus says, follow me and be my disciple. So Matthew got up and followed him. Now when a rabbi says, follow me, he wasn't just saying, hey, come along, we've, we've got, you know, let's go. We've got a plan. When you said that, when a rabbi said that, it was a much deeper call than that. A rabbi was saying to a student, a potential student, I think you can be like me. I've been watching you. I see your character. I see who you could become. And I think you could be like me. I think you have what it takes to become not just a student of mine, but to become like me. So a rabbi would be watching a person, would see their character, and determine whether or not this is someone who has what it takes. And so Jesus must have known Matthew. Jesus must have been watching Matthew, and Jesus then calls Matthew to become like him. And notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, Matthew, I need you to change first. And then follow me. He doesn't say, Matthew, I need you to repent and follow me. 
Jesus doesn't say, I need you to give the money back and then follow me. He doesn't, say, I need, he doesn't even say, I need you to quit tax collecting and follow me. It's a simple follow me. He doesn't give him a lecture. He doesn't give him a sermon. He doesn't give him a speech. He just invites him to follow. And so let me pause there and just say that if you've ever thought or been told that you are too far from God, or if you've thought or been told that God desires for you to get your life together first, that has never been the story of God. It has never been the story of God. Don't ever believe that you're too far away from God, that whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whatever you have uh, thought in the past, Jesus' invitation to each of us is always, follow me. And so the story says that Matthew pushed back his chair and he follows Jesus. It doesn't matter what Matthew did yesterday because today he's choosing to follow. Now there's this ancient proverb. I shared this about a decade ago in a message. I had to go back and find the sermon to figure out where it was because I, I knew I had, it's one of those like, it was like one of those thoughts back there somewhere. And I'm like, I know I talked about this once. And so, um, Mac computers are so good at that. If you just type in a few words and then it finds it. And Google Drive is so good. Anyway, so I found it. It's this. And I found it in a book uh, that is since not very good anymore. This ancient Jewish proverb is this. Follow a rabbi. Drink in his words and be covered with the dust of his feet. Follow a rabbi, drink in his words and be covered with the dust of his feet. Now, in the first century, what would happen is as rabbis would teach from town to town, as as they would travel, they would be in the lead and their disciples would be walking behind them. And there was, there was, there was some teaching, the idea was that you wanted to be just like the rabbi, so much so that you would act and do what the rabbi did. So you'd watch to see how the rabbi interacted with people, and then you wouldn't want to follow in the same steps as the rabbi. Even that they would literally sometimes walk in the steps of the rabbi as the rabbi was walking. And they would walk close, and the closer you walked to the rabbi, it was thought that you would be more like the rabbi. Now, you can know that as they walked from town to town, they walked on dusty, dirty roads. And as they would walk, the dust would be flying up from your feet as you're walking. And those who were behind the rabbi would find themselves with dust on them, with dirt on them from the dust that was kicked up by the rabbi walking in front of them. And so the imagery here is that as you follow this teacher, as you follow this rabbi, that as you soak up the words that are given, that as you watch and see how this rabbi lives life, that dust will begin to settle on you and you begin, you become covered by the teachings of the rabbi. Now, why is this such a big deal? Because Jesus' greatest desire for you and for me is that we follow that we would follow, not to try and fix ourselves and then follow, but just to follow. 
And that the more we follow and the closer we follow, we'll notice that the dust of Jesus is falling all around us. And we'll notice that as we're following Jesus, it's changing our lives. It's this gradual process that we've talked about the last couple of weeks, that it's this idea that we're conforming and forming to the image of Jesus Christ. And it's just begins to happen, that things we used to do, we don't do anymore. And things we didn't do, we now do them readily. And not because someone is telling us or threatening us, but because there are parts of me that are broken and they're becoming fixed. There are areas that were sick and now are becoming healthy. That there were things that were misaligned in my life and now I'm becoming fully aligned with Jesus. And so this simple challenge to follow leads to this path forward, which leads us to this idea of the way. That the closer we follow, the healthier we become. And the closer we follow, the more we become like the rabbi, and we begin developing this way of living. And so Jesus' first challenge to Matthew is still the same challenge for each of us. That we need to push back our chair and we need to make a decision to follow Jesus. To simply follow one step at a time. Don't try to change anything, just choose to follow. See, Matthew didn't know where Jesus was leading him. He didn't know what Jesus would ask him to do. He only knew that he was going to follow. Because the challenge was given to him, follow me. Each step, each decision to move closer to Jesus, we become more like Jesus. And what starts out as this simple following turns into dramatic lifetime changes over the course of our lives. I remember when I was 17 years old, it's the first time that I made any kind of significant religious decision. I decided that someone was preaching. It was this old preacher guy who was preaching at a summer camp. And I don't remember a word he said. I just had this pattering in my heart. And they kept talking about going to an altar. And I went up and knelt at the altar. I didn't know. I thought it was magic or something at the time. I just kind of, and actually, to be honest with you, I was doing it because I was going to summer camp because there were girls there. Like, that was like my interest in summer camp. But, but I, I decided I'm going to make this decision. And I remember I went back to high school the next fall and nothing really changed. But yet I always had that decision that I had made in my mind. And then I went back to summer camp the next year and I made the same decision again. And I just kept doing it. And I thought, I, I thought this is just not, it's not working. It's failing. But what I didn't know was that every time it was just a little bit closer. I was getting a little bit closer to Jesus. And I remember I was, I was in a similar situation sitting in, in, a, in a chair similar to what you're doing right now. And someone was talking and I felt that God was telling me I was going to be a pastor. And I just had to make the decision. And I was like, going oh, on, no, there's no way. Because in my mind, this is what I thought of pastors, all right? Uh, I've shared this and I, I, this group, I can share this story. Uh, I thought that pastors wore robes and I thought that they sang in choirs. And I thought they hung out with old people. Because that was my only image of pastoring. And I thought, I'm not, I don't want to do that, all right? I don't want to wear a robe. I don't want to wear a tie. And, and thankfully, I've never had to do that. It's worked out well for me. But, but you see, but you see I, I, this is what happened is I went, all right, God, I'll do this. I said, but God, I, I don't want to do that. I'll, be, I'll, 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 make, I'll make this decision. And so I went away to seminary. 
And I started learning about what it meant to be a pastor. Well, while I was in, actually, I went to college then. Uh, but while I was in college, then this next step, this next time where Jesus was simply saying follow. I was about 20-some years old. I'm in college. And somebody asked me, a professor said, would you consider being my part-time youth pastor at my church? It was a peach of a deal. It was two hours away, and they paid me 50 bucks a weekend. Talk about opportunities galore, right? And I said yes. And then I graduated from seminary, and someone invited me to become a pastor in New Jersey, a youth pastor in New Jersey. And then three years later, I graduated from seminary. Yeah, that's when I graduated. Getting a little confused. Here's my point. Every step, I had no idea where it was going to lead. I just was faithful to follow Jesus. If you had told me when I was 17 that I was going to be a career pastor, I would have thought that's foolishness. If someone had told me when I was 23 and I had just decided to become a youth pastor, and someone had told me when you're 53, you'll be in a cafeteria in Mount Laurel <laughs> preaching to a group of people and trying to plan a campus, I'd have said, that's insane. I don't want to do that. But what starts out as a simple follow me turns into this process of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and it transforms our life. And we follow close to the rabbi. We follow close to Jesus and this dust begins to settle on us and our lives are changing. So here, here's, why, here's why I tell you all that, okay? This is an incredibly important time in the history of Hope Church and in the history of the world. At Hope right now, let me do, do Hope and then we're going to talk about the world. Right now at Hope, we're planting this campus, all right? This is an incredibly important, important time for, for that. You are part of that endeavor, right? Either because you accepted a challenge and you've joined in the effort or you arrived here since we launched and, and now, welcome. <laughs> you're, 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 you're stuck with us, all right? That kind of thing, all right? But launching a campus, here's what we need to know. Launching a campus creates growth and that's a good thing. But as a faith community, we are also, because of that, experiencing challenge because with growth comes change. And change can be challenging. For instance, next week, we're at the Mount Laurel Community Center. We're really excited about that. But man, we're going to bump into all sorts of things we didn't think about. All right? Just like when we came here for the first time. And so we're going to have a list of things. Oh, we didn't know about that. We didn't know about that. We're going to figure them out, but it's going to be change. And we're going to love the change, but it's also going to be change. Pastor Jeff has a great saying. Uh, it's actually a mantra, I would, I would say. It says this. He says that growth requires change. Change leads to conflict. Anybody have teenagers? There you go. Growth requires change. Change leads to conflict. Here's the end. Conflict is the opportunity to make things better. Because those of us whose teenagers are no longer teenagers... If it's done well, will tell us that that's the case. It's the opportunity to make things better. And so this is why this idea of us discovering what it means to follow the rabbi and in this way of living is so important as a community. But even more important than that, I would suggest, is the world. 
The people that we inter interact with at home and school and work are experiencing anxiety and depression and anger and more extremes than ever before. And there are these varying levels of fear throughout. If you watch the news or read the paper or go on Facebook, there's the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, the polarizing midterm elections, the opioid epidemic. It is just heart-wrenching. Our culture is just being torn apart. And the reality is, Randy said this at a preaching meeting, that the world is broken and that you and I are responsible and we have responsibility. That the world is broken you and I are responsible, and we have responsibility. And so I thought of a clip from a movie, and we're going to show it. Uh, it's from um, Remember the Titans. And uh, I want to just, uh, I don't know how, the graphic might not be great. It's not a high-def clip because I downloaded it myself. I'll take responsibility for that. Uh, but the sound, I just want you to hear what Coach Boone had to say. So let's see if we can make that work. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. <laughs> Wake up, gentlemen. It's late. It's 3 a.m. in the morning. All right, listen up. You will follow Doc, myself, and the other coaches. We're going to take a little run through the woods. If you get lost along the way, don't bother coming back to camp. Just hitchhike your hind parts on home. Any tears? Let's go. Anybody know what this place is? This is Gettysburg. This is where they fought the Battle of Gettysburg. 50,000 men died right here on this field, fighting the same fight that we're still fighting amongst ourselves today. This green field right here, painted red, bubbling with the blood of young boys, smoke and hot lead right through their bodies. Listen to their souls, man. They killed my brother with malice in my heart. Hatred destroyed my family. You listen. You take a lesson from the dead. If we don't come together, Right now, on this hollow ground, 
we too will be destroyed. Just like they were. I don't care if you like each other or not, but you will respect each other. And maybe, I don't know, maybe we'll learn to play this game like men. So the world is broken. You and I are responsible. And we have responsibility to do something about it. I confess that I naively, ignorantly, and innocently thought that these things were dealt with. It's a broken world. Fear overwhelms us. And hatred runs deep. And it's embedded within our culture. And it's woven into the fabric of who we are. This is not the world that I want my children and grandchildren to be a part of. It's broken. And we're responsible. And we have responsibility to do something about it. And so what's the answer? I don't believe change will happen through legislation or elections. I believe God's church can and should make the difference in the world. Bill Hybels famously said the local church is the hope of the world. And I, I truly believe that. truly believe that. That's why I believe so strongly in this place, in this community of faith, that we aren't just providing a place for people to worship on a Sunday morning. We are offering a way to live that will and can impact and change our families and can change our communities and can change our nation and can change the world. And it is a daunting, enormous task and only possible when people following Jesus can demonstrate to the world around them that there is a better way, that there is a best way to live and it's following after Jesus. And so Paul, speaking to the church, says this and it's up on the screen. He says, don't fret or worry Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens. I love this part. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. Paul tells this church in Philippi, don't worry. Now, he's not talking to individuals. He's talking to the plural you. He's telling you folks, don't worry. All of you, don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Instead of worrying, pray. Now this is more than just teaching for Paul. This is Paul's testimony. He's writing this from a prison. How much more worry or fret could you have than if you were living in a prison? And he writes this letter and he says, instead of worry, instead of fret, pray. 
And when you pray, Christ will displace that worry and be the center of your life. That prayer is this foundation. It's our connection to God. It changes us. It focuses us. And it shapes and forms us. And then Paul goes on and he says this. Summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things that are true and noble and reputable and authentic and compelling and gracious. The best, not the worst. The beautiful, not the ugly. Things that praise, not things that curse. Put into practice what you learned from me, what you heard and saw and realized. Do that and God, who makes everything work together, will work you into his most excellent harmonies. And so we follow after Jesus. We follow closely in his steps. We discover that we're on this way that is forming and changing us. And collectively, we're part of this community that lives differently. And that living differently, change as we change and live differently, that there's something appealing and compelling to our neighbors and our coworkers. Something that will bring peace into our world. A way of to live that will make a difference while living here in this world. And so all of you here, we're part of this journey. This, this journey of discovery as you move forward into this next season. Next Sunday, don't forget, we're not here. We are at the community center in Mount Laurel. You'll have a cushioned seat. I'm going to preach 10 minutes longer just because <laughs> you're going to have cushioned seats. Will you stand with me now for closing prayer? And so, God, I thank you for the men and women in this room. I thank you, God, for those who are part of this community who are not here this morning. God, I pray that together we would discover the way. God, that we would follow closely after you. God, that our lives would be changed. That no matter where we've been in the past, God, that doesn't matter because today we're going to choose to follow you. And God, that as we live this life, God, that we would bring healing to our workplaces, that we bring healing to our towns, God, that we would, we would have a dramatic impact on the world around us. God, that our, we, we confess our world is broken and we are responsible. And God, we have some responsibility for this. God, I pray that that would be, God, I pray that that would be our desire and that would be our hope. And God, that we would know that simple steps of following you can have dramatic impact on our lives. And so God, we thank you for this. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys have a great day.